I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton. I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this. That's the plan. Hey, how are you doing, podcasts? Adam Buxton here. I am reporting to you from a farm track running down the side of some wheat fields. It's rather overcast. It was raining earlier on. And that's the sound of... Are they wood pigeons? That's not a very good impression, is it? But I have it in my head that I tend to hear their call after it's been raining. Interesting. Thanks, Buckles. (laughs) A plane! It's a small aircraft flying above there. And as it crossed my field of vision, so too did a bird flying the opposite way. A metal bird and a flesh bird crossed paths. Up ahead is my dog friend Rosie, a whippet poodle cross with beautiful orangey eyes. Not bright orange, you understand, that would be scary, but just nice. There's Techno Bird there over the wheat fields. And even though I would prefer if it was as nice and sunny as it was yesterday, I really don't have anything to complain about. So, let me tell you about podcast number 99, which features a conversation with British comedian Frank Skinner. Here's some Frank facts for you. He's currently age 62. He grew up in the industrialised market town of Oldbury in the West Midlands of England. Frank got an English degree at Birmingham Poly, and he got his master's degree in English literature from Warwick University. Frank turned his attention to stand-up comedy in 1987, and just four years later, he won the prestigious Perrier Award at the 1991 Edinburgh Festival. By the end of the 90s, Frank was a household name in this country, thanks not only to his stand-up, but several highly successful and influential TV shows, including Fantasy Football League, which he co-hosted with fellow comedian and football pal David Baddiel, who, of course, was also one of the architects, along with Frank and Ian Broody from the Lightning Seeds, of one of the greatest football anthems of all time, Three Lions, which they recorded for Euro 96. Yeah, it's fine, but it's no... Yeah, they don't generally sing that one in the football terraces because the rights are prohibitively expensive. Speaking of David Baddiel, in the first half of the 2000s, David and Frank struck gold once again with Baddiel and Skinner Unplanned, featuring improvised comedy and conversation inspired by questions from the audience. Used to really enjoy that show. Meanwhile, from 1995 to 2005, Frank had his own chat show, first on the BBC and then on ITV. 
And for the last 10 years, he's hosted a Saturday morning program on Absolute Radio, along with current co-hosts Emily Dean and Alan Cochran. Frank has also hosted the BBC TV show Room 101 since 2012. That's just a bit of what he's done. And now he's performing Showbiz, his new stand-up show at the Leicester Square Theatre, till the 27th of July, 2019. And then he is going up to the Edinburgh Festival and doing some more shows there before beginning the showbiz tour of the UK and Ireland in September. You can find details of all Frank's upcoming dates in the description of this podcast. My conversation with Frank was recorded earlier this year, 2019, in a meeting room of the central London office of my agent, which, as you will be able to hear occasionally on the recording, is a busy place with exciting, talented people coming and going and chatting loudly in the reception area. And it's also got some exciting roadworks. Frank and I talked about painful celebrity encounters, arguing with the person you love, online insults, and Frank's evolution from lad mag hero to, according to certain people, public intellectual. But we began our conversation talking about a band that continues to mean a great deal to both of us. I'm talking about The Fall, whose cantankerous, unpredictable and brilliant frontman Marky Smith died at the beginning of last year, 2018. In the description of this podcast, you'll also find a link to a Spotify playlist featuring the songs by The Fall that we mention, as well as some of my personal favourites by the band. Back at the end for a small helping of waffles. But right now, here we go. How did you get into the fall? Um, well, it's an odd story. I was driving late one night. John Peel was on. I had John Peel on the radio. And he played a track called Spoilt Victorian Child. And it utterly, I mean, it blew me away. I thought, oh, my God, this, you know, this is brilliant. This, I've got to find out about this band. And for some reason, I just never did. It was like now I would have just gone to Apple Music or YouTube or something, but that those things didn't exist then. And I just never got round to it. And it wasn't until, I mean, probably, well, I'd been on the bill with them um, in the interim and still hadn't really checked them out because I was at a... Um, a New Year's Eve or a Christmas, some sort of Yuletide event at Glasgow University. And I think the bill was the fall bad manners and I think Blamange. Oh, right. And So this um, is early 80s. When I, yeah, when I, well, late 80s, I would say. And when I arrived, 
the Ents officer, who was a lad who looked about 12, said to me, oh, there's been a bit of, it might be a bit delayed tonight, because there was an argument between the fall and bad manners during the sound check, and, and a member of bad manners pulled a knife on one of the four. And now Marky Smith has said that he won't play with bad manners on the bill. He said, so I've got to go and tell them that they're not on after all. I said, where are they housed, bad manners? He said, they're in that room down there. And I had walked past this room. And if you had to do, you and I know how to sit with a special effects uh, cassette or two and make a bad behaviour soundtrack to play. <laughs> that was what I could hear when I went past this room. Bottles breaking and swearing and just thumps, which unidentifiable loud thumps. Yeah. And I said to this guy, you can't go in there. Um, I said, get some of your security. He said, well, the thing was, once we'd bought you and the fall and bad manners, and I'm, I'm pretty sure it was Blumont's the one, he said, um, that was kind of my budget, so I didn't get any security. <laughs> and I said, honestly, I'm not going to let you go in that room. And in the end, he had to get some people, from, they were Clydesdale police, or, and, and they had to go in and, and tell. So by the time I went on, my last train was imminent, so I never stayed to watch the fall. Anyway, about five years after that, I was with my, uh, my partner, Kath, in, in Brighton, and I bought a CD, 50,000 Fall fans can't be wrong. I finally acted on something I'd heard on John P, or maybe 10 years earlier. And I played it... Um, and I turned to her four tracks in. I remember this very clearly. And I said, this is the music I've been searching for my whole life. Wow. And that was exactly how I felt. I felt that the fall had been playing in my head forever. And that is what I'd been sort of reaching for. Yeah. You were in your 40s at that point. Yeah. So I was a late adopter, as it turned out. It saddens me that I could have gone into... If I'd have acted on that John Peel, I would have been into them... You know, I saw them, I think it's over, well, it's 44 times, I think I saw them live. But that was over quite, that was just over a few years, really. I would drive around, you know, I'd drive to Cambridge or Oxford or what, and if they did like four or five London gigs, I'd go every night and and stuff like that. Because I was playing catch-up on all this fall time I'd, I'd missed out on. Yeah. And then you got to meet him. In, had you met him before you did that culture show thing in 2007? No, no, that was the first time I'd, I'd met him. So that was for a segment that would be on the culture show, and you were both 50 at that point. That, that's right, yeah. Was that song 50-Year-Old Man already out on one of their albums? That, that was, yeah, that was currently in their set, yeah. Yeah, so they got you together. They knew you were a Fall fan. Yeah. And they sat you down in a pub in Reading. That's right, yeah, because they were doing a gig in Reading that night. And he arrived an hour late. And when he arrived and said, all right, Stuart, how are you? That was, that was how it started. Mark, how are you doing? I'm uh, fine, Stuart. Oh, how's your baby? Good to meet you. <laughs> but I was, I was, you know... As I, in Stuart Lee. Yeah, well, I'm guessing. Who, who is Lee. also a massive Fall fan, and, and he had probably met Stuart by that point, mm. been interviewed by him, I think. I think, yeah, and Stuart so, had been there for, for years. Was yeah. he winding you up, or, or, or was almost, it just a slip? Certainly. Right. No, I doubt if it was a slip. 
Um, How's the baby? He says. But we we did he? Yeah. Well, we sat. We sat. I forgot that bit. We sat down, and I remember there's a bit where he's being quite off with me. There's several bits, and I say to him, "Mark, I really love you. Be nice." <laughs> and I think eventually he kind of melts because at one point he says to me, "You know, I'm like you, Frank. I'm a fall fan as well." Which is a very sort of intimate thing for him to say and quite confessional for him. Because I think part of his thing was pretending that, in a way, he despised the fall as well as championed it. So I think in the end, I I won him over. And incidentally, we sat talking after and he gave me a cigarette, which I still keep the end of that I smoked because it was given to me by Marky Smith. I really think that, that that I watched it the other day. I watched it at the time when it went out. I watched the edited version of the interview you did with Mark Smith on the Culture Show. But now on YouTube, there's a there's the whole thing uncut. Mm. The rushes someone's got hold of and stuff. No, I gave it to a fall fan. Ah, did you? On the proviso that he would never let anyone else see. <laughs> <laughs> but fall fans, I tell you one thing about fall fans that a lot of them. They develop a sort of a spiky, difficult persona in homage to um, Mark. Yes. So people who I think would have been quite nice people feel that they have to be a bit, a bit Markish, and that bloke fell into that category. But I don't, I don't mind it being out there. Really, it's certainly the best interview I've ever seen with him. The most revealing, and because you're obviously you're a seasoned interviewer yourself, but that bit you mentioned where you just refuse to let him bulldoze you and he's just teasing you mm. he's just saying i've got i've got a few clips do you mind if i play no no please so he gets into this riff about you talking about writing memoirs yeah and he starts talking about well maybe i could finish my memoir at the point where i meet frank skinner and he says <laughs> it's always nice to meet famous comedians like frank skinner and all. there you go there's your opening line <laughs> I'm very excited about meeting you. Reflecting on Give my me life. Time. Reflecting on my life. Yeah. I was quite worried about meeting you today, you know. Now I will hang myself. I realise it was so. I will hang myself. <laughs> <laughs> and then he carries on with that joke for a long time. <laughs> right. And uh, hang on, I'll, uh, this is towards the end of that riff. <laughs> I was sat with Frank Skinner. I knew it was the time to go. I went back to the hotel and top myself. <laughs> so he's going on about that. <laughs> you, and then you sort of step in, and it's really interesting because you disarm him and chasten him. And then, he's, then he apologises, which I've never heard him Dude, do. He's not big on apologies. <laughs> <laughs> but it's there, and it's a sort of meek, sweet apology. Really? Yeah, yeah. I love you, Mark. <laughs> you know that. <laughs> I love you. Wow, no, you've been so... horrible. <laughs> I love you, you changed my life. Well, good, I don't know. No, I'm telling you. Well, good, I'm glad. I'm serious about that. I'm going to get right. this out of the way now. I'm sorry. No, it's all I right. Don't I don't know that. No. I'm sorry. Yeah. And he's sort of humbled by the fact that you say, you changed my life, and he, and he goes, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> he, it doesn't compute. He doesn't know what to do in that moment. It's great. And it's weird. I haven't heard that, I think, since I did it. Yeah. How did you feel when you came out of the 
Because it, it couldn't have been uh, a relaxing encounter. No. But like I say, we sat for quite a while afterwards and chatted. No, you, you are. Um, he's always ticking, Mark. I think at the end of it, I felt some human warmth mm-hmm. from him. And also, you know what, I, I think I wanted to tell him that anyway. I think when you're with people who you really admire like that, you want to tell them, but you always think, once I tell them that, there's nowhere to go in the conversation. Yeah, because then the power dynamic is totally skewed. And praise is such a... It's such an awkward... And I, I, in, on one level, I need it, and on another level, I hate it. Like on the radio show I do... We have this phrase, praise redacted, so that I hate it when you hear DJs say, oh, we got a text from Steve here. He says, I absolutely love the show. It's brilliant. And could you play? And I think, you don't read that out about yourself. That's so... I, I just, I think that's wrong. So, I, yeah, maybe it was a kind of a grenade. Uh, he was getting a bit, you know, unkind. I don't know what my thinking was, but listening to that, it was like, I'm just going to tell him. I'm going to tell him how much he means to me and how much the four mean to me. And if he's still horrible, at least I've, I've done that. And interestingly, as you say, when you listen to that, he, he responds to it. Yeah. It's like he's, yeah, he's, he's, he's a tiny bit embarrassed for himself, like he's a bit ashamed. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking hell, he was funny, though, wasn't he? I it? could forgive him so much. Did he know that you were a Doctor Who fan? I don't know if he did. <laughs> and he says, uh, I, the subject comes up. Oh, yeah, because you say to him, is it true that you were offered the part of Doctor Who? Oh, OK. And he says, yeah. Well. And then he carries on and says... One of the greatest achievements <laughs> of world TV, Doctor Who. <laughs> In this kind of withering way. Yeah. And then he says, who watches that? No, what is that after they're 15, do they? Uh, maybe he did now then. It sounded like he did. Right. And then the other thing that made me laugh was he goes off on one about actors in groups. <laughs> right. Actors who join bands and have musical ambitions. Yeah. He says... It irritates me uh, is all these actors, you know, in groups. I think that's really irritating. It really irritates me Actors in groups, like who? You know, actors, you know, actors, they're actors. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And then they form their own groups, don't they? They do tours and all that. Oh, yeah, like Kevin Bacon and stuff. And uh... I don't... Yeah, yeah, Yeah. sort of... uh, That's what they always really wanted to do. I I think that should be banned. (laughs) (laughs) That'd be an interesting legislation to pass. (laughs) He's, I think Kiefer Sutherland's doing it at the moment, isn't he? He's, isn't he? In the yes, band? yes, you're right. He played at Glastonbury a few years back. I mean, it's a phenomenon that few would identify, but I saw many years ago, I saw Billy Bob Thornton right. doing it in a plane live. Have you seen that interview that he does with his band on a thing called uh, Cue the Music or something? with a, a journalist who had a bit of a Me Too, well, quite a large Me Too moment, who was uh, supposedly mistreating girlfriends with rough sex play. But that's by the by. He's interviewing Billy Bob Thornton, and years before this Me Too thing blew up about the presenter, this incredibly uncomfortable interview takes place where the presenter is trying to acknowledge 
that Billy Bob Thornton is an actor, well-known, Oscar-winning even, or nominated for mm-hmm. Sling Blade. It's not like he's trying to make the whole interview about Billy Bob Thornton and his career and ignore all the music at all. He's just, he mentions some mm. of the films that Billy Bob Thornton's been in and he refuses to answer any questions. He sits there in silence, staring at this guy and the, the other two members of the band are all really uncomfortable, don't really know where to look, kind of mumble a few answers to some of these questions. And then eventually Billy Bob Thornton explains that he's upset because... He's been asked about his acting career. Oh, okay, that's not who he is, then. No, this is about the band. Is Billy Bob Thornton called William Robert Thornton? Or is <laughs> Billy Bob a name? <laughs> I, that's never occurred to me until you said it a couple of times. Because not many people um, abbreviate both <laughs> first names. They're both Christian names, if you can still call them Christian names. Yeah, that... I would say it is, it's got to be Billy Bob, don't you reckon? I don't know. I'd BB. like to discover that he was, um, he was Billy Thornton. And then he thought, you know what, why don't I, why don't I reduce the other name? Billy Bob has got a nice, um, it's got a nice sound to it. I mean, it's a sort of joke redneck name, isn't it? Well, I mean, it's... <laughs> no disrespect. No. There is a Southern <laughs> American thing of putting those, those of names together, like Jerry Lee Lewis, yeah, for example. Yeah, and um, Billy Joe, there is, as a woman's name. Jerry Lee Lewis, actually, I, is someone else who I love and I've seen several times. Yeah. And I was in Memphis for the Lennox Lewis... Evander Holyfield fight Mm -hmm. and the night before Jerry Lee Lewis was doing a show so we drove out to see him he came on and did I have come to realize that a lot of people I really like are gits (laughs) (laughs) yeah and he came on and did quite a long monologue about how it was outrageous how much money boxers were paid compared to what he was paying and he talked about what he was getting paid that night and, and stuff like that. But there was an English guy there and he came over to me and said, Look, I'm going backstage, do you want to come and meet Jerry Lee? And I said, look, I love Jerry Lee, I listen to his stuff all the time. And I'm going to be honest with you, I, I'm worried that if I meet Jerry Lee, he might, say if he shot me, I, not to kill, but to maim, I don't know if I could really embrace his music as I had before. So I I didn't go back. And I've looked back on that and thought, should I or shouldn't I? That was after you'd had your Marquis Smith encounter? Um, I don't, I'm not sure. It would be around the same time, I think. Because you would think once you'd done Marquis Smith and come out of it alive... Yeah. ...that you could tackle anyone... Because that's the worry, of course, about meeting your heroes in that way, is that, yeah, it will be painful for you to listen to their stuff thereafter if you don't get on, mm. if they clearly well, I think take it a dislike would. to you. Um, Have you ever had that before with someone you admired and you had such an unpleasant encounter with them in real life that it turned you off their stuff? I interviewed um, Gene Wilder. Mm. And I would really loved a lot of his film sure and he said to me before the interview or maybe during the interview you know i'm 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 an actor right you know i'm not a comic 
And I, I did an interview with him in which he was, I don't know, he was, I didn't, I, was, I hadn't really learnt the skill in those days, so I probably didn't do a great job on it, but he didn't help. I'd been to visit him backstage at some Neil Simon play to meet him before to sort of break the ice. And I remember his wife was there and she wore a surgical mask throughout. <laughs> and I wasn't sure whether she was worried giving something to me or getting something from me. But anyway, it was the norm on uh, the chat show that I did that I would then write to the, the guests and say, you know, thank you, for, it was very, really enjoyable to meet you and all that, which wasn't strictly true. And I had a letter that came back. He replied, which most of them didn't. Mm-hmm. A letter saying, I cannot believe that you described this interview as enjoyable. It no. is without doubt the worst interview <laughs> I've ever done in my entire <laughs> career. And um, he went on, he riffed on that theme. So it wasn't uh, just like a two-line letter? No, no. (laughs) He went on. I mean, one thing that he pointed out, which I think was a fair cop, was I showed three (laughs) clips from various films that he'd been in, and he wasn't in any of the clips. (laughs) Um, Which was reasonable, but I had made that point during the interview. I'm sure. But uh, so when I see him in things now, it's it's not the same. I mean, he's, you know, he's no longer with us. But when he died and there was all these warm tributes about what a lovely bloke he was. <laughs> yeah, you weren't. I did think back to that. You yeah. weren't tweeting. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I should have just put the letter option now on, on Twitter. I swear, I've never heard of that before. Someone replying to a courtesy... Letter, yeah, <laughs> with a with a takedown, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's sort of impressive. What's going on in his mind then? That he is, he just can't let you get away with it. Does he feel obliged to let you know for, you know, going forward in your career? By the way you may want to consider that when you do an absolutely terrible interview, you shouldn't write a yeah. courtesy letter. I well, think. I think his basic advice was don't do a terrible interview. Don't do a terrible but if interview. you have done it, don't compound it by sending a letter saying how much you enjoyed it. <laughs> um, I mean, I suppose he had, like, he was being um, more honest than me. And I right. suppose he, you know... He, Maybe that gives him the moral high ground because I, I, it wasn't an incredibly enjoyable interview, but you know, politeness and all that. I, it's just, I was impressed that a Hollywood star who was still very active at that time had got had just taken the time, yeah, to write that letter. Yeah, it's hard enough writing sincere thank you letters, like pleasant thank you letters. Yeah, I think that um, you've got it. What you really need to get round to writing that letter is motivation. And I think you really wanted to make that point of how little he'd enjoyed it. Maybe people had built it up for him, like, oh, Frank Skinner's a big show, you're really going to like it, he's the king Maybe. of Maybe. Something like that. And he just thought, no, I'm not Maybe. having it. So do you think his little armchair psychology for you that the reason you're into these gits is that they 
somehow manifest some sort of freedom and authenticity that you crave and and you can't enact in your own life? Well, I think I have um, probably more than my fair share of, of gittishness as well. This is something that's often pointed out on the radio show that I do by the others. Yeah. I, th- I have, I have... Um, also, you don't say, I mean, you, you don't really censor yourself very much. It's not as if you're tiptoeing around most of the time. No, I, I, but I've tried to temper the, the levels of it so that it, um, you know, because I think it does alienate and offend. But I, I, there was a speech I used to do on television productions if somebody wasn't really pulling their way about how I had intelligent articulate and imaginative friends back in the West Midlands who were working on the bins uh, because they hadn't been born in the right place to the right kind of family with the right contacts. And I would say that I don't resent that you were, but I think if you're given that opportunity, you should pick it up and really run with it, not not, uh, disregard it and take it for granted. And it was a speech um, which never went that well. (laughs) <laughs> but um, I'd like to think they learnt from it but it probably went the same way as Gene Wilder's letter Right, let's go again What don't you fucking understand? Kick your fucking ass! Let's go again! What the fuck is it with you? I want you off the fucking set, you prick! No! You're a nice guy! What the, the fuck are you doing? No! Don't shut me up! Seriously, man, you and me, we're fucking done professionally. By the way, sorry, I'm mentioning Gene Wilder's yeah. letter. Can we just segue back? Um, are you familiar with the fall song Dr. Box letter? Yeah, it's I one mean, of my favourites. is a work of art. It really it? is. What is it? Have you ever tried to find out what he's reading out? It's an article about Pete Tong, is yes. it? Yes. He suggests that the title of it is The Essence of Tong. Yes. And then at one point... He, he reads quotes from... It's great, because he starts laughing as he reads them out. Yeah. He says things like, uh, things I always have with me, my Amex card, they made such a fuss about giving me one. <laughs> and, then, and then he starts laughing about it. But in the midst of it, he stops as a reminder <laughs> of what's going on. And he says... Uh, we are in the realm of the essence of tongue. <laughs> and then he goes back into it. <laughs> oh, it's brilliant. The first part of the song, which has nothing to do with the beat tongue section, mm. is a fantastic, dirty riff. I've never looked at the lyrics from that section. Dr. Bock's letter, I've always thought there was a, a, a murderer called Dr. Bock Roxton. Uh-huh. And I've always imagined, because it sounds like a very foreboding section of it's that song. It's very close to my name. That it was about, yeah. I suppose it is, yeah. <laughs> Dr. Bock Roxton, and you can probably work this out for yourself, was a surgeon and was also known as the Jigsaw Murderer. Oh, dear. I think you can, yeah. you can guess the rest. Easy Jigsaw, though. Um, I believe, I, I think I read somewhere that Dr. Buck was uh, Charles Bukowski. Oh, okay. Because I think he was a fan. I mean, there's another old git. Yeah, exactly. And yet when I was, I remember seeing that film, Barfly, 
yes. with Mickey Rourke and Faye Donaway. And it completely blew me away. It's one of my favourite films of all time. I was drinking a lot at the time. And one thing I think that heavy drinkers love is a romanticised view of heavy <laughs> drinking. And so I really bought into that. It, 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 oh, man, it, it's brilliant. I think I watched Barfly at the cinema and I've never watched it again. I, I should check it out. It's got a good soundtrack. Um, there's a lot of Booker T and the MGs on there and that's what got me into them. Okay. Years later, I sort of investigated Bukowski... And Barbet Schroeder, who directed Barfly, conducted a series of interviews with Bukowski around the same time, maybe before or after the production of Barfly. They're available on a DVD somewhere, and there's a couple of hours of them. Okay. They're really good and uh, odd. On well, there's a lot, although I've only seen that film once, there's a line that has lived with me and I've quoted many times, and I think it was because at that stage in my life, any sort of romantic as in relationship things I'd tried had all failed horribly and often there were men who were more obvious men if you know what I mean mm-hmm. who had more testosterone yeah, man. involved manly men and there's a bit where he finds out that she's seeing another guy and he's called something like Bobby and he says uh, oh not Bobby he said with his his obviousness and he's on original macho energy. And I really love that. It seemed to be a justification for all the blokes like me. Yeah. And I think that, that, had, that line, that one line, has had quite a big influence on me. Yeah, yeah. I've not really seen him reassessed in the modern post-Me Too climate, uh, Bukowski, but presumably that will come. He's a, he's a strange... Why? Would, he, would he be a difficult uh, case? For well, he certainly... I mean, there's an interview where he is sat on the sofa with his then-wife slash girlfriend and they have a row and he sort of drunkenly reaches over and, and sort of kicks her off the sofa in a really scary, unpleasant way. He was just sort of obviously fucked up on booze most of the time mm. and had a, a very strange relationship with women in all sorts of ways that Mm. comes out in his writing and uh, there's all sorts I mean you you have to assume with a figure like that that he's fundamentally wounded and sensitive and not just a straight ahead yeah yob or bad guy but I feel I feel the thin ice cracking beneath us as you speak But yes, I would hesitate to direct people to his stuff completely cold because it's pretty extreme, I would say, a Mm. lot of it. There's a video of Bukowski at his last live poetry reading, I think, in California around 1980. And uh, so that gives you a good idea of where he's at. But it's quite weird because he's got a new audience that uh, it, it's like a second wave or even a third wave of yeah. slightly ironic youngsters who've just discovered this strange old guy. Like William S. Burroughs went through the same right. process. He's quite complicated post-Me Too as well as he um, shot his wife through the forehead whilst playing William Tell. Yeah. It was an accident. Yes. 
But it's a weird thing to watch these young people hanging on every word that Bukowski says and just laughing at everything. Everything is funny to them, you know. Mm. So Bukowski reads quite an uncomfortable poem with what sounds like fairly weird misogynistic language in it. And everyone laughs. Everyone assumes that it's just a joke. Right. And it probably is, but it's not maybe laugh out loud funny. It's difficult, that younger disciples thing. I'm uh, somewhat obsessed with Jack Kerouac. Mm -hmm. And when fame kind of destroyed him and turned him into a lonely, angry drunkard, these young students would turn up at his house every now and again. Not a particular group, but all sorts of young students to whom he'd become this heroic figure because of On the Road and um, would take him out and buy him booze. And when you read accounts of that, he looks like someone who doesn't quite know where he is and who doesn't want to be the messiah they want him to be, but he wants the free drink and he wants a bit of adulation. And it's a really awful juxtaposition. Just a sort of freak show. Mm. Very weird. Well, here's a great segue then. Have you noticed your audience is changing over the years? <laughs> <laughs> well, I did. Uh, I got interviewed at Latitude. I had a book out, and at the end of it, they went f for audience questions. And a woman raised her hand, some you know, middle-aged woman who looked like she might have had a job with the word community in it. Um, and she said to me, "I used to hate you." And now I really like you. Who's changed, me or you? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And I thought it was a very interesting question, yeah. And uh, I don't know, because um, people have... I was introduced on a show recently as a public intellectual. <laughs> Whoa. What show was that? <laughs> that was... Um, what's it called? Front Row? The, oh, uh, yeah, Radio yeah. 4 thing. So I think... Um, I had a letter this morning um, from Radio 3, a woman saying, I, I heard Frank Skinner um, discussing one of William Wordsworth's Lucy poems on a programme this morning. I've taught that poem for years and um, I found his interpretations very new, very moving and interesting. I actually cried as he read it. Wow. And I thought times have changed, haven't they, yeah. from being on the cover of Loaded. So I suppose the audience have changed, but only because virtually all my stuff, like I'm, you know, I'm doing a lot of stand-up at the moment, and it's autobiographical, as it always has been. So the actual container is not any different. I still write the same way. I still write freehand, like when I first started writing stand-up, because I didn't have anything I could type on. So I still write freehand. But the thing is that because it's autobiographical, as your life changes, the stand-up changes or your comedy changes. And so it's not a plan to be 0.2. It's just the sausage meat is different. And so thus, so are the sausages. Yes, because you have uh, a partner that you've been with for several years. You have a young 19 son. 19 years, yeah. yeah. With breaks. How old is your son? Seven. So it's, uh, yes, it's a different landscape to the one that you described in your early routines. Yeah, and I'm older, I don't go out so much, and um, I don't have this terrible 
craving that there is a party going on at, at the end of the road that I should be at. Now, if there's a party at the end of the road, my only hesitation is whether or not I should call the police about the noise. <laughs> and did you struggle? Like, how did you make that transition then? What was the thing that stopped you? Was it just meeting Kath? That no, I had a that? very, very um, awful relationship with, with, uh, with the woman. And when I managed to extract myself I remember that when I used to get home at night I would have terrible stomach cramps of anticipated unpleasantness and friction and the first night I got back to an empty flat after the relationship had ended I remember that the joy and relief of going into an empty place and I think ever since that day, I have been very at ease, alone in a room. <laughs> and I don't want to be at the party and uh, I don't want to be at the film premiere and all those things that I used to go to. There was a time when a, a magazine, a fairly low-rent magazine, admittedly, named me as Party Animal of the Year. That now seems unbelievable to me that that happened what had you done to qualify as a party animal does that mean that you are just at every single event yeah they had a picture they had like about 10 pictures of me with my arms around different women okay some who i had been involved with some who were just friends and some i'd never seen before in my life who assume had said can i have my photo or a photographer had said do you want to have your photo taken together um but it was, I say this as if I'm a... When I saw it at the time, you know, I was, um, I was glad to be portrayed as someone who's that popular. Uh-huh. Parties are bad. Don't you think? I've been to about four that I enjoyed. Right. I think that's pretty good. Yeah. Dinner parties can be good. My problem, Yeah, that's a different thing. Like... You, one of my worst things is when you're at a dinner party and we're sitting at a table now that seats, what would you say, 12 people? Something, something like that. If, say, if we were at this table at the dinner party, I hate it when they start to split into groups. Uh-huh. I like it so that when you speak, you are addressing the whole table. I agree with you. The idea that I'm going to say something really funny that's only heard by three people when there is a potential <laughs> audience of 12 breaks my heart. Now, you've made it about being... Uh, I'm serious. ...self-absorbed. I wouldn't see it necessarily in those terms. I think that it's more of an enjoyable experience when the table is united, when one person is speaking and everyone listens. Yeah. So I think that when you go over about 10 people, that starts becoming difficult, and what you're describing happens is that people pair off or, or split off. My beautiful great wife, mm. who is the best in the world if you're listening <laughs> you know that right i i love you so much she doesn't agree with that she sees that desire for me to just have one person speaking whoever it doesn't have to be me could be anyone but mm. let's all just listen to the one person she's not having it she's like no that's i don't want someone just monologuing i want to talk to who i want so she will do a thing where I, i'm chatting to someone across the table she'll start another conversation with someone so we are crossing streams there's and- something rude i think about that moment when the whole table becomes a series of splinter groups the people who begin that i think are being quite ill-mannered yes 
It's as if a teacher um, were talking in class and then some of the kids started talking amongst themselves. Not that I see myself as a teacher in the social setting, or sometimes. Public intellectual. Yeah. I actually said, we, we had... Magnum a- PI. That's what the <laughs> PI stands for. <laughs> what if we found out that it was Magnum public intellectual? <laughs> he, he played it down very softly <laughs> to his credit. TC, I want to read you some Yates that I think will make you <laughs> feel differently about this. But I had a discussion about exactly this with my wife. And at one point, I did actually say what you just said about, like, I think it's a bit rude. I just think mm. it's a bit rude to start a conversation across someone else. It's distracting from a practical point of view. I'm suddenly, I, I can't concentrate on what the other person is. I just think it's a bit rude. And she said, a bit rude. Don't be so ridiculous. I'm married to you. As if, like, within a marriage, there can no longer be any rudeness. No, that can't be. I mean, it's true that rudeness diminishes quickly in a marriage. (laughs) But, um, no, I think that's... um, I just don't agree with that. I think it's... um, I know where she's coming from. Because she abhors sort of showy-offy, look-at-me type behaviour. So I think she's basically thinking about times when I have been showing off and I have been trying to grandstand or monologue, you know. I think the worst, one of the worst falling out that me and Kat had, we were in an apartment in France, not very far from the Shakespeare bookshop that was where James Joyce's Ulysses was first published. Uh Uh-huh. And we were in this apartment and she said to me, out of the blue... What colour was your hair originally? <laughs> and I said, well, you can see what it was originally. I mean, it's grayer now than it was then. Yeah. And she said, uh, well, no, it's just grey now. And I said, well, no, it isn't. It isn't just grey. I said, I know it's grey. Now, the, the problem with this argument is it sounds like I was touchy about it being grey or not being grey, but I just couldn't understand why she couldn't still see the original colour. And I said, the original colour is very apparent. I don't know what, what you're talking about. And she said, no, it's just grey. And I started to get not only angry, but quite anxious. And I said, I've, I, I'm becoming alarmed that you have lost touch with reality, was what I said. And she said, OK, well, text three friends and ask them what colour your hair is. She said, but we have to agree (laughs) on the text. So there's no leading question or any kind of sleight of hand going on. Wow, she's so together in this argument. So I sent a text which said quite simply, sorry to bother you, what colour is my hair? To three friends that we chose together. Yeah. And they all sent back the same, basically the same thing was, well, it's a sort of mousy blonde, dirty blonde colour mixed with a quite a lot of grey. Yeah. So um, I said, well, there, there you have it. That's true. By then, she had become so furious that she'd ended the relationship. <laughs> but we were in France, so she started to say, phone your PA. This is where the story gets less um, accessible. Phone your PA and say we're flying back tomorrow. I've had, you know, I can't cope with this anymore. And I said, well, I'm glad because... I'm so convinced that you've lost touch with reality. I'm now, it's really got into my head that you are going to stab me in the night. (laughs) And this was how far it went from an argument which started off with her saying, what was the original colour of your hair? (laughs) And that is, um, 
It's scary, I think you'd agree. Yeah. But the thing is that there's always a subtext, isn't there? That you either get to or you don't. I mean, usually you don't. Usually the argument just goes its own way and the whole thing blows up and it's you lose control of your emotions and your ability to think coherently. And there's absolutely no way that you're going to sit down and go, hang on, hang on. What is this really about? Yeah. But if only you could do that, it would be great because there always is. It's never about like... It's very hard, though, to hit, hit the, the brake like that in an argument. It and, is. And have a sidebar. I do the exit in high dudgeon or low or medium dudgeon. Okay. Any of the dudgeons. Yeah. At a certain point where I just think, this is bullshit, we're going round and round. And I'm probably at the point where I'm going to say something I'd regret. Then I do the exit. Mm. And she doesn't like it at all. Because it's like, that's not fair. You can't do the yeah. exit. Fuck you, do the exit. She doesn't say that, but that's no. how she feels. Yeah. And she goes, all right, off you go. Oh, no, that's... <laughs> yeah, I don't like that one. <laughs> In the olden days, when I was less mature, because I'm great now, if I'd got a okay, off you go, then I would have done big slam with oh, the door. Oh, right, yeah. Slam, house shaking. And then I would have stomped off and probably cried. I had an argument with a woman and she, I said, I'm, I'm just going to go. I'm, it was my flat, but I said, I've just got to go away and walk and just have some normal That's silence. the best thing, I think. And I remember as I walked out, she stood at the doorway. This was in a flat, remember, which I lived in. And so there was, um, this is my current girlfriend, by the way. And she shouted, fuck off, fuck off. Fuck off! Really loudly three times. And it reminded me that I'd read in an essay by Milton (laughs) that um, at the time it was legally binding, if you said, I divorced thee, I divorced thee, I divorced thee, that you were divorced. (laughs) And I really wanted to make that point. Like Candyman. But I, I, uh, (laughs) I, I couldn't walk back into that storm, so I just... Walked away with that Milton reference burning a hole in my pocket. As we would expect from Skinner, a public intellectual. Skinner PI. Skinner PI, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Frank Skinner PI. <laughs> I must tell you one other thing that happened. We were having an argument. Um, we argue less now, I should say. Yes. This is a woman I love very much, but we had a volatile relationship indeed for a long time. We argued on very loudly on the Strand one day and it got so heated that people were um, taking, taking photographs. <laughs> and so we stepped down the side, sort of behind the Savoy, to argue in privacy. Mm-hmm. And we went into this alley and we stood there and the argument was really getting... You know, when they... You know, I... Felt I want to get out of this argument, and I can't, there's no, I can see no way out. I hear me shouting, and I don't, I don't want to be in it. I want to just say, please, can we start by comp? Anyway, we argued horribly, and it suddenly dawned on me that the alleyway we were standing in was the alleyway where Bob Dylan filmed the subterranean homesick blues with D.A. Pennebaker. Wow. Yeah, uh, with um, Allen Ginsberg. Yes. There and stuff when, he, when he's throwing the, the boards with the words on. Yeah. We were in that alleyway. And it was really because the argument was carrying on 
But I was also standing back and thinking, oh, wow, this was where the video was. And I really wanted to share my joy with her. She hates Bob Dylan. But I had to carry on arguing. So I wasn't allowed to enjoy the, what would have been a brilliant moment. But you must have been arguing just with the soundtrack of Bob's in a basement. <laughs> exactly. <another> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on the pavement screaming at my girlfriend. Wow. <laughs> I know that exact tally. Hey, everybody in the modern time. They got to get themselves a podcast. I will do yours and you'll do mine. We're sorting out the problems of the world so fast. Your son is called Buzz. Mm. And is that after Buzz Aldrin? It is, yeah. Right. So you love space. I'm a child of the space race. Yeah, I mean, that was when I was growing up. That was the big thing. I was born a month before the moon landings. I stayed up to watch the moon landings. Did you? Yeah. And I watched the lunar module land. I was lying on the sofa with my whippy. We were both, he was like coddling him. We were lying flat out. He got interested after the Leica experiment. <laughs> no, not really. um, Leica, I should say to your listeners, was the dog who uh, the Russians sent up and who perished in space. Did he? I forgot he died. Yeah. I think they forgot to leave the window slightly ajar. <laughs> anyway, um, I, so I stayed up to watch the moon landing and fell asleep. And when I woke up, uh, they had walked and returned <laughs> to the lunar module. <laughs> so I missed the whole damn thing, which is a cause of great regret to me. So, yeah, I did name him after Boz. And also I thought... There was something I found satisfying about naming him after the second man on the moon, so as not to set the bar yes. too high for life. Although that was post-Toy Story, so there's that, that, that name has that resonance now as well. Yeah, but of course he, um, Buzz Lightyear was named after um, Buzz Aldrin, so it's all part of the same yeah. genealogy, yeah. really. Right. In fact, Buzz Aldrin has since... Because Boz is not, Boz was his nickname. Uh-huh. He's Edwin Aldrin, but he uh, adopted Boz as a name by deed poll. So Boz Aldrin is now officially Boz Aldrin. And he told me that he was thinking of adopting Lightyear by deed poll <laughs> as well. I don't know if he was serious. He seems. Did he serious. really say that? Yeah, but he'd had such an enormous facelift, I, I couldn't really tell his intentions visually. <laughs> That doesn't seem right, an astronaut getting a facelift. He said it was the G-Force. That was his joke about it. Right. There is a picture of me and him together at a post-facelift, and it honestly looks like I am doing a show, a ventriloquist show, with a Buzz Aldrin ventriloquist dummy. I mean, it really looks like that. Yeah. <laughs> you would have thought he'd uh, come to terms with gravity. Yeah. All its forms. Unacceptable, incompetent, and amateurish. Buckles, why are you still in your post? Poop pants. I say to you, poop pants, poop pants. I say again, poop pants. Buckles tried to clarify that the language was a requirement, though he didn't sound sure. Poop pants. It's good to be poop pants. Poop pants. I don't know, maybe not. I was listening to some people talking about the whole concept of. Cucks, 
cuckolds. Oh, yeah. You know how you... I've um, never heard it abbreviated. I think it was kind of the alt-right younger troll people Mm. who started getting a hold on the internet about five or six years ago, I don't know, pre-Trump. But they started calling liberals cucks. So if you were in the run-up to Trump being elected, if you were pro-Clinton, then you were a cuck. Because, I don't know, the implication was that you were a sort of weak man. You were the kind of... If you were someone that thought feminism was a good idea, you were probably also the kind of person that would be happy to see your wife sodomized by someone else and watch videos of it. That's not necessarily the definition of a cuckold. No, I think a cuckold is a little less aware normally. Yeah, right. So originally a cuckold would... That's sort of Chaucerian... Isn't it? Or Shakespearean? I, I mean, I'm sure it is. I think of it, it came... Its golden age was restoration comedy, I would say, when every... There was a cuckold in every thing. But, yeah, it gets mentioned in Ben Johnson and stuff. Yeah. Everyone was laughing at them because... They uh, didn't know that their wife was sleeping with someone else. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They were the last person to know. But now, in, in sort of porno terms and insult terms on the internet... It's the sort of person who gets a kick out of that kind of thing. I find it interesting. I don't do social media, but I find it interesting. I'm always interested in any developments in language. Mm. And I find it interesting the way the art of insult is something that's really been ever more refined and made sophisticated. I'm always hearing... Like, angry white men on the internet are dismissed as gammons because they're like pink pieces of gammon as they get redder through rage. Yeah. And there's that one, is it a a turf, which is a trans... Trans Trans-excluding radical feminist. Yeah. And it's almost like if you can make an acronym out of it or some sort of good nickname, you've won the argument. (laughs) And I sort of like the idea of, of puns and that being such a dominant and potent force in society. Yeah. Cuck is not... I mean, it's such an ugly word, really. i tell you what I don't like about... In the way I, I like the sound of gammon and turf, as they, they seem quite specific, whereas cock, to me, it's, it's just a little... It doesn't quite fit with what I would think of as what a cockhold is and what their experiences with someone who's a sort of liberal reconstructed man there's a difference between those two usually the cockholded figure in restoration comedy was a sort of a boris johnson type lord so-and-so type thing so he was the opposite of one of those liberal men so i think that it's a bit messy that one yeah could do better you all right are you uh <laughs> are you a sort of grammar pedant and phraseology fascist. Um, How are you with your um, with your son, for example, when he comes back with weird bits of school slang? My son said to me, um, "It seems wrong that the word small is bigger than the word big." And I like the way that I like that he was thinking in those terms. It made me think that he'd probably be a stand-up comedian. Yeah, definitely. How do you... Like, your tour, this tour that you're about to do, Mm -hmm. has it got, like, jokes and shit? Or is it just you riffing and doing crowd work? Oh, no, it's got uh, lots of 
jokes. I think I'm one of the few comics, though, who's still doing jokes in a celebratory, I do jokes kind of way. Because when I get interviewed, people keep saying to me, what's the theme of this show? I'm not anti-theme. I've seen theme shows that are really good, but I think there's a feeling that if it isn't themed, then it's not theatrical. Right, it's somehow more superficial or something. Well, I think drama has become the thing, the cool thing. I don't hear that many people now. I mean, I don't hang around water coolers, but when I hear people talking, they're often talking, other than Fleabag, and even Fleabag is, it's not drama, but it, it has drama in the family. It's in the same postcode as drama, even though it's very funny. I think people aspire now to drama. I think most Comics I've spoken to who are under 30 want to be actors probably more than they want to be comics. I would say my show was pure stand-up. There's no theatrical element to it. A lot of people do shows now about, you know, uh, their wife's colonoscopy. And there's jokes around it, but that's the basic theme. Mm -hmm. And I... uh, I haven't done one of those. I'm not saying I never will, but I don't, I'm not sure I will. Yeah. Uh, Have you done one of those? Yeah, no, no. No, never say never. But, um, you know, I guess the most likely thing that I would do one about is the old dead dad thing. But it's, mm. uh, everyone's done all, you know, this, it's so mm. hard to put a new stamp on those things. But no, I haven't is the short answer. Also, you know, I would much prefer to do a show with lots of jokes in but i if i'm lucky will write two jokes that are in any way funny a year or something mm. uh, i admire your uh, the last thing i saw as i was looking at your comedy masterclass spoof on youtube oh yeah which looks fairly recent did you do that it, quite is, it is fairly recent yeah. it's sort of you well, de- it's looking back yes. on a piece of material i did a few years ago it's but. you deconstructing your jealousy routine in the style of those ludicrous masterclass things you get online now. And you've got a line about referring to a, a joke about punctuation in the original routine. Oh, yeah. And you say, oh, there's not many punctuation jokes around these days. I blame the parentheses. Yes. That's, you have to be happy with that. <laughs> <laughs> How do you arrive at those, uh, at the risk of being very literal and asking a boring technical question, but... Are those things that generally pop up in conversation and then you make a note of them? Yes. Right. So you don't sit at your desk going, funny things, funny things. I occasionally do that. Like when I did Room 101, people would choose a topic and then I would sit and chew that topic over and see what I could find funny. But usually, either in conversation or actually on stage, someone will say something and I'll respond and it'll get a big laugh. And I tend to tape every show nowadays because my memory isn't what it was. So I would go back and, and, and think, oh, that, that could become material because it's already got a laugh in its, you know, unadulterated form. Obviously, there are some jokes you do which you can only do that night and they won't. Like I had, two nights ago, I had an anaesthetist. I, I said to this bloke, what do you do? So I'm an anaesthetist. And I said, oh, Brilliant. I said, it's not often I get a chance to talk to an anaesthetist. Well, not for very long anyway. And it got a big laugh and I thought, I'll never be able to use that again because it's just, you know, it's just not going to crop up. But I also like that. I also like it when you know you've done a joke that is that it's a unique 
you know, one-off response thing. There's something exciting about them. Wait, this is an advert for Squarespace. Every time I visit your website, I see success. Yes, success. The way that you look at the world makes the world want to say yes. It looks very professional. I love browsing your videos and pics, and I don't want to stop. And I'd like to access your members area and spend in your shop. These are the kinds of comments people will say about your website if you build it with Squarespace. Just visit squarespace.com slash Buxton for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, because you will want to launch, use the offer code BUXTON to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So put the smile of success on your face with Squarespace. Yes. Continue. Voila. Hey, welcome back, podcats. That was Frank Skinner. As I said in my intro, I've posted links to various things we talked about in the description of this podcast. You will find there the website that has all his upcoming tour dates, if you want to go and see him. What else have I got links to there? Uh, oh, well, there's the, the whole of the interview with Marky Smith I've put a link to. Um, there is the Comedy Masterclass I mentioned. There's a good documentary that was made about Frank in 2001, I think to coincide with the publication of his first autobiography. He's published two in his time. Uh, the second one was really more about him sort of resuming stand-up a few years after the, the first one, which was much more about his early years. It's really good. I recommend them both, but that first one is particularly good. There's a link to that uncomfortable Billy Bob Thornton interview from 2009. Uh, But there's also a link to a thing I hadn't seen before from 2016, where he explains on another radio show the background to his uh, strop on the Q interview. And the way he tells it, it sounds a little more understandable. You decide. Uh, Also got a link to that last poetry reading by Charles Bukowski that we were talking about. I don't know if it would be a good place to start with Charles Bukowski. Probably not. There's quite good documentaries. Rosie, is that you? It's either Rosie or a very big rabbit over there in the field. I can't see. Rosie, come here. There you are. Oh, mate, you're all sodden. (laughs) She looks completely different. When she comes out from the wet field, she just looks like a big old weird rat spider. Anyway, she's having fun. That's the main thing. Um, So, yeah, maybe I'll post a link to uh, a Charles Bukowski documentary that's a better introduction to him. 
Although the poetry reading is good because it just gets you right in there to some of his mad stuff. Oh, now look where I am. My route today leads me past a magnificent wise old tree. Tell me, wise old tree, what kind of a tree are you? Uh, don't know. I mean, quite outgoing. I'm up for a laugh, you know. Yes, but what is the name of your type of tree? Don't be racist. No, no, I'm not. I'm just, I'm aware that I don't know the names of many of the beautiful trees and plants around this part of the world. So I just, you know, I thought it would be respectful to ask. Well, be respectful to know and not have to ask me. Yes, I'm sorry, wise old tree, you're right. I mean, you look like an oak to me. Would that be right? Fuck off, oak. Oh my God, that is racist. What, like every big tree's an oak? No, no, I wasn't, I was just saying that Sorry, I saw some acorns and I thought, yes, I'm wearing acorns. So what? They were a gift, if you have to know. Well, they're really nice. So, how's things been? Have you any festivals or anything like that? Yeah, we had a festival last weekend, actually. Oh, really? Cool. Who was on the bill? Uh, the Roots. Of course. FKA Twigs. Yep. Bark Psychosis. Sure. Uh, the Birds. Mm-hmm. Bush. Bleh. Screaming Trees. Yeah. Robert Plant. Bleh. Kate Bush. Yeah. Amazing lineup. Yeah, yeah, it's organised by Mike Leaves. Mike Leaves. Mike Leaves. Mike Leaves. Mike Leaves. Mike Leaves. Leaves. Mike Leaves. Leaves. Mike Leaves. Leaves. Yeah, and his daughter, Mandy Branches. That sounds great. Is it fun? Yeah, it's amazing. And on the first night, we had Stormzy. Wow, that's incredible. Must have been exciting. Yeah, it was brilliant. And on the second night, we had Cloudsies. Okay. Bye, wise old tree. Yeah, all right, bye. Ah, wise old tree. Hey, Rose. How you doing? You lying there while I was talking to the wise old tree, thinking, what the shit are you doing? You are stupid and entirely unnecessary. I love you. Did you know? Oh, man. Hmm. All right, we better go home. Well, that's it for this week. Back with another rambly and I think pretty stupid conversation for episode number 100, which should be plopping out in a week or so. Thanks very much to Seamus Murphy Mitchell for his invaluable production support. Thank you so much, Seamus. Really appreciate it. Thanks very much to Acast. Without their support... I wouldn't be able to make this podcast, or at least I would make it even less regularly than I do. So cheers. Thanks to you very much for listening. And until next time, we share the same outer space. Stay fresh with the beat, watch what you eat, keep your room nice and neat. That's the word on the street. I love you. Bye!